I could open in Matthew 9, where we were earlier. And as we do so in Matthew 9, we've been singing this morning without organ. We've been giving that a crack. It's been great. We've been gathering and praising God. We've been praying to God. And I suppose this morning, I want to start us thinking about prayer, particularly. Jesus takes us there to prayer. He gets us to think about it. But just to start our thinking, I'd like to ask a question. What do you pray for? What do you pray for? If you didn't know that the word pray is a, from an old English word, it just means to ask. What do you mean, what do you ask God for? When I was a child, I remember praying like a child. That is, as a child, you know, you're kind of, you're growing up and you go to Sunday school and you get your friends around you, your peers. It might be the, the four that I grew up with in Sunday school, just the four of us. And that became our youth group and that became, you know, the young adults that we were. But I remember praying to impress them because I thought that's how I'd show them that I was, you know, somehow an extra special person. So I used to use large vocabulary in my prayers to impress my friends. Vocab that I learned from television usually because that was, you know, a main educator of the day. So I used to come along and I'd pray and say, say God, uh, thank you for electricity. And all my friends would be like, oh, that's Big word, yes, yes. I'd say, God, uh, thank you for telephones. May our neighbours have telephones and other countries have telephones. All oh, my friends are very impressed. Oh, telephones. I remember one morning, my mum my was one of the Sunday school teachers. There were a couple of them there. One morning, and I got off some TV show. I forget it was Flash Gordon or whatever it was. And um, no, no, no one knows who that is probably these days. But Flash Gordon... And um, so, you know, kids, this was me. And I, I prayed this prayer, God, thank you for cosmic destruction. And after we opened our eyes, my mum grabbed me by the arm, and only way mothers can do, I think it was probably about here, actually, that special arm grab, and she's whispering in my ear, we're going to talk later. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I prayed like a teenager. Uh, for me, as a teenager, I had this one for many years, or no, ongoing saga, a crush on a particular girl, and so I prayed like a teenager, which means my prayers were kind of consumed with her, because I was consumed with her. So I'd pray, and I remember looking at the clock radio at night, I'd you know, go to bed about 10, I'd pray, I'd wake, open my eyes, oh, 10 past 10, 10 minutes, my God is going to be impressed with that prayer, that was a 10 minute one. I prayed immaturely, perhaps like a teenager, but just the way I prayed. When I was a uni student, I prayed for marks, because uni students, you know, I work with uni students now. You get them in a Bible study and there's the concerns of the world. There's Syria and, you know, who's going to win the Olympics and all the big concerns of the world. But the biggest concern for most students is, I just need to pass. I just need to pass. Please pray that I pass. I prayed a lot like that. But now I'm old enough to know how hard prayer can be, let alone what to pray for. I wonder if someone could listen to your prayers. If, if there was a fly on the wall, a fly on the wall in my house, what would they hear? What would they hear your prayers are about? What do we pray for? What do we ask God for? The big things, the little things? What do we ask God for? What matters most to you? Because that's what you pray about. What matters most to you will fill your prayers. Here in Matthew 9, we get a picture of Jesus' ministry. 
If you read one of the Gospels, you can't escape who Jesus is. He's there, he's doing his thing, and he says the hard words. Sometimes people, students say to me, Russ, you say very hard things. Give up your life and do this. Well, look at Jesus. He's the man of the hard words. He's the one that makes us squirm a little bit and think, oh, that's a bit uncomfortable. He's also the one who has compassion. He's the one who you see his ministry and you can't help but see a man, the man who is God, doing marvellous things on earth. In Matthew 9, the context of what we just read from verse 35, the context before that is Jesus has been healing, he's been teaching and he is the crowd rock star. He, people are flocking to him. It's, it's more than Justin Bieber comes to town. This is Jesus the miracle worker, the healer. This is more than a star. This is someone special. So that when we see Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, we see Jesus' ministry. It's a small picture of it in one verse. We read Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. This one verse describes Jesus' life ministry for about three years. Many people today are confused about Jesus. They guess who Jesus is, but they're so confused. They're confused about who he is to start with and they're confused about his ministry. But look to see, to start with, who Jesus is. He is, first and foremost, in Matthew 9.35, at this point in his ministry, he's a preacher. Jesus is preaching. That's what he does. So if you ask a crowd of people today, what did Jesus do? He's, well, he's a nice guy, he's a guru. Maybe even if you're a Christian person, you'd probably say he's a healer, Jesus heals. But that's not Jesus' primary ministry. He comes to preach. He's got something to say and you're going to listen to it because it in fact is the most important news you'll ever hear. That's what Jesus brings. And we get the content of that news in this verse. It is the good news of the kingdom. We live in a world of bad news. That's how our world operates. Our media makes money out of it. So much so that you, the serious media, you know, the bad news of the world, and then you've got the not-so-serious media in the supermarket on the shelves, all the kind of the gossip magazines. It's all bad news. I don't know how many times that, that Nicole and Keith have broken up to get back together again. I don't know how many times that Tom and Katie broke up before they did actually break up, where they're going to get back. To, I don't know, because it's all bad news. That's how it works. Because the world works on bad news. Because it lives in a place that is so soaked in bad news. And Jesus says, got good news for you. And we know, if you look at the people that meet Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, they know he's got some good news. You can't help but rub up against this man and say, there's something good here, there's something good going on. Creation has been ruptured, changed. Someone has entered who's doing marvellous, he's healing... But you notice every time Jesus is healing, and even in Matthew 9, he's healing, but before he's healing, he's teaching. He's preaching. It's almost like teach us, interrupt us. He gets te- he's teaching, he's trying, to, he's trying to preach a sermon just like this, and all of a sudden someone comes in, heal this person, he's, he's paralytic, he's on a mat, heal him. But Jesus wants to preach, and he wants to preach the good news. 
And the Bible calls this good news gospel. Gospel. I think when we hear gospel, we think, oh, religion. Gospel's not a religious word. It wasn't created by the religious. Gospel's a media word. Used by the people of the day in Rome, when the emperor had a son, they would coin, mint a coin, and it would say on the coin, gospel. The emperor's got a son. And they would spread that throughout the kingdom. Good news. That's the media of the day. The Bible picks up that news. The writers pick it up and they say, here is gospel. More important than an emperor's son. Here is God's son. Good news. And this son is going to become a king with a kingdom. The good news is about a kingdom. Why is that good news for us here in Karain? It's good news because in this kingdom, this king is the good and loving king who died for his people. He died for our sin and he rose for our hope. And nothing else and no one else did that for you. We often place our affections on many things, don't we? We love many things. I love my wife. I want to admit that. I do. I love Amy dearly. It's so easy, though, in young love, we've been married two years, that she's my life. You know, she, she becomes everything. I just got to watch out. We've got to watch. We talk about this. We've got to make sure, no, no, because the thing is this. I never died for Amy's sin or rose for her hope. And then my stuff, my car, my house, none of that stuff, none of this, nothing else in this life died for our sin and rose for our hope. That's good news. You can't get that anywhere else. That's gospel. And Jesus preaches it. Jesus is healing every disease here in Matthew. He's fixing every affliction. He's doing all the medical stuff that doctors can't do. But the thing that no one else has, no other one has this news, is that God is for you in Christ. He is for you. God has given you good news, grace in Jesus. So Jesus preaches this gospel. But as he continues this ministry of preaching, and Jesus, it sounds like, is a pretty good preacher. I mean, he's God, so he's probably pretty good at it. As he preaches, this is the strangest thing happens. Because here is God, as a man, preaching, best preacher you could ever hear, and that we'll hear for eternity, preaching, and then he looks up and he notices a problem. That's right, God says there's a problem and we need to fix it. We see it in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Notice here, Jesus looks at his crowd as he's preaching and he doesn't look at them and go, you're a bad bunch of people and I can't stand you. He doesn't do that. Not many years ago, I was preaching in Africa, a bit of a history, but I was, I was back there in Africa and I was preaching in, I was preaching in Uganda, I didn't know the language and um, I had an interpreter. And if you know Africa and it's seen at the moment, it's a place that is devoid of understanding grace. Many African churches and pastors, they don't preach grace, they preach just, basically it's prosperity, gospel, it's works, and it's, it's a disease and it's a problem. So we're trying to fix that. But I was there and I was, 
at a big, big massive congregation, preaching grace, preaching the grace of the gospel, trying to show God has given you grace. It's wonderful. But my interpreter, who I didn't understand, of course, every time I'd preach a sentence, God loves you. He's shown you grace in Jesus. His interpretation would come out like this. No, 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 no. Like, I think, is it the same? Jesus doesn't get up to the crowds and get angry and preach at them and tell them how bad they are because they probably know that. He knows that. But he sees as a problem and he has compassion for them. Literally, if you were to read, literally this word here, compassion, literally Jesus is moved in the guts. He is moved in the guts. He's, he's physically moved on the inside when he looks at the crowd. He has compassion on them. He feels for them. And as he feels for them, he feels for them because, not because, you know, they don't have as good a clothes as he does, but because they're harassed, they're helpless, they're lost. They're like sheep without a shepherd. I've been telling my students in Bendigo, some of them are country students, some of them are not. They come from Melbourne, Sydney, other places. I've been telling them, it helps to know a little bit about agriculture to understand the Bible, sometimes. Just know a little bit of illustration. Just know what sheep are. Some people, you know, we meet, you know, you probably get the same, you've got city cousins. Some people, the closest thing to being a sheep is owning a pair of Ugg boots. You know, but if you know sheep, then you know what Jesus feels about people. Sheep are so helpless, aren't they? We had sheep, we had wheat and sheep on our farm, and we spent many a summer uh, trying to help sheep in their own helplessness. So dams would dry up. What do sheep do? They try and get to the water in the middle of the dam, but of course there's mud and they get stuck. And so you go in there and you pull out the sheep out of the mud and you put it on the dam bank. And what do they do? They get up and they run straight back in. They're so helpless. They, they can't barely defend themselves against foxes and dogs, dogs particularly. Yeah, crows, they lay down. They, the crow picks their eye out, their tongue. Also, like, and the only defense a sheep has, the only inbuilt defense that God gave a sheep is to stamp its foot. That's it. They're so in need of shepherds. Someone to care for them. Jesus looks at people and he sees sheep. He sees people that need someone to care for them. And he's literally moved on the insides. Jesus is moved with pity for people. That's why he died. He died for people. Not as an example only. Not to liberate the poor, necessarily. He died for people because we're lost and we needed it. We needed a shepherd who would lay his life down for his sheep. That's what Jesus' work is all about. But also Jesus shows us here, not only the culmination of his work later in Matthew's Gospel, but also he shows us that, well, we need to think like him about people. He'll tell us in a few moments in the next verse, but just look at how Jesus thinks about people and think about how we think about people. What do you pray for? When you think about people, do you think of them as annoying you on the road or your neighbour's noise? 
When you think about people, do you think about them as not being as, as good as you? Do you think about people as those that just are faceless nobodies that don't matter to you? Jesus thinks of people as those who matter so much to him. When we think about people, I think particularly it's tempting for people like, I'm just going to say me at this point, like I'm old enough now, I'm almost 35, so I'm old enough now to say to a younger crowd of 20-year-olds, you know, I'm old and wise. But I'm also young enough that older people say, you're young and you're a young punk, you know, nothing, right? So I'm kind of in this weird age, I'm not sure what I am, old, young, Students say, you're old, you're greying. Huh. Old people say, you're, you, you're so much to learn. Yet. So, so just bear with me, but I think it's easy for me in my 35-year-old slash, you know, whatever, crankiness to look at a young generation of people and say, hopeless. To not love them with compassion. I've got a couple of quotes here from people, social commentators about their society. I wonder if you think this measures up with our society. Someone said this, a social commentator said this, The young people of today think nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They're impatient of all restraint. As for the girls, they are forward, immodest, unladylike in speech, behaviour and dress. Is that a measure of our society? It was written in 1274. Another one. What is happening to our young people? They disrespect their elders... They disobey their parents, they ignore the law, they riot in the streets, inflamed with wild notions, their morals are decaying, what is to become of them? Sounds like our society, all the bad people out there. Plato wrote that in the 4th century BC. It's easy for us to judge, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, it's easy for me to say, those people are terrible, they're, they're nothingness. Jesus looks at them and he's moved in the guts. Are we moved for them? Are we moved for them? Or do we just still treat them as our enemy? Are we moved for them? They might think we're the enemy, but we are to be moved for them, for their sake. Do we care for them? And the next verse, in verse 37, Jesus says, this is where the rubber hits the road. Then he said, after looking at this crowd and being moved, then he said to his disciples, that is, get this, not just apostles, this is learners, disciples, followers, us. Then he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I don't know about you, maybe someone's preached this recently. Thanks be to God if they have. I don't know about you, if you've prayed this a lot, and I'm praising God if you do. But for me, and in my context, even here in regional Victoria and Bendigo, I feel like this is a rare prayer. I feel like of all the prayers that we pray, this is one of those rare ones. Just don't hear it that much. But Jesus says, we're to pray this. We're to ask, implore. The harvest is plentiful. See, it's not what we assume, is it? I'm a Presbyterian. All right? That's my admission, okay? I'm a Presbyterian, so I feel it. And I know when churches are smaller and we feel like we're older, 
And there's so many vacancies. And we talk to people at the college and we look at our region. We talk to presbyters. There's so many needs. And my first gut reaction is, those crowds of people out there, I'm not moved for them. And my second gut reaction is, perhaps this is like you, is, well, it's not that the harvest is plentiful, Lord. It's just the soil is so hard. It's too hard. It's way too hard. And it feels too hard. I work at a university where it feels hard. And, and you know, we, what we do is we evangelize our friend. We tell our friend the gospel. And they're, they're not interested. And so what do we do? Well, it's not working. That doesn't, doesn't, we'll stop it. We'll do something else. I feel the same temptations to think, Jesus, are you sure? Are you sure the harvest is plentiful? Because it doesn't feel that way. But Jesus says what I think is still true about our society, because he thinks it, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. We've never had so many people in the world. And our world has never been so, let's call it, spiritual in their thinking, whatever that means, than it is today. As much as the secularism rages in Australia, we're a tiny nation. But the harvest is still plentiful. When I was farming, we knew when the harvest was plentiful, it was time to go. Jesus, funnily enough, kind of swaps metaphors here. He goes from sheep to harvest, just in case you didn't understand the sheep bit. And he moves to harvest, and he says it's plentiful. That means it's time to go now. When I was on the farm, when I, my first year of driving the header, I was 13, and it came to 12 o'clock. So what did I do? I stopped for lunch. And my dad drives the truck down the paddock, and he goes, it's a breakdown. No, 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 I'll stop for lunch. I'm having, having an hour off and I'm going to kick off again at about one o'clock. And he says, you're green as grass. When it's harvest time, you don't stop. There is no time to stop. The harvest is plentiful now. It's ready now. I know it's tempting to think one day in the future, then it'll be ready, people will be more interested. When Billy Graham came to Australia, I think the last one, 1959, about three million people heard Billy Graham. That was a third of the population of Australia at the time. A third! A third of the Australian population heard someone preach the gospel. We can barely get 12,000 at Orange lately. Like, it's just, it seems hard. But it's not. The harvest is still plentiful. It's not a problem with the harvest. It's still plentiful. Jesus doesn't identify that as a problem, whether it's plentiful or not. He identifies this as the problem. We don't have enough harvest workers. That's the problem. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's the problem. Now, the question is, if God is sovereign... Why is this a problem? How can it be the sovereign Lord who's currently walking the earth at this point looks out, sees a problem and somehow can't fix it? Come on, Jesus, you've been healing everyone. You heal the paralytic for goodness sake. Surely you can produce more workers. Bang, done, fixed. But Jesus, in his sovereignty, God in his sovereignty, gives us the privilege of prayer. And in this privilege, he says, here's a role, a work for us to do. And the first thing to do is pray. Ask. 
the Lord of the harvest for more harvest workers, to send them out into his harvest field. See, we know the harvest is not just hard, that it is plentiful because it's God's harvest, isn't it? We know that there are people out there who we will meet and share the gospel with in our workplaces, in our community, over the fence, even in our own families. Many of these conversations happen. And there'll be people that say, that's just silly, Jesus. I mean, do you still believe that? But there'll be other people, we will never guess their reaction. And they will say, really, can I find out more about this? The harvest is plentiful because it's God's harvest. He's the one, we read in scripture, we know this is true, don't we? He's the one that in 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians 6 says there are people out there that are his. They're his people. They need to hear the good news that Jesus preached, that we preach today. It's God's harvest. The old hymn, I cannot tell, belts it out, doesn't it? Those famous lines. We shall reap a harvest that he has sown. It's not our harvest. We didn't create the the possibilities. That's God's job. All we do is ask, we pray, and we speak. We proclaim. It's really easy, in fact. It's easy to know what to fill your prayers with. To pray for more workers for this harvest, for the labourers a few. And it's relatively easy to speak. I know people, you know, sometimes ignore you. I know it's hard and they don't like it very much and they might, you know, swear at you even. Happens a fair bit. But they didn't kill you. They didn't persecute you. That happens to some people, some of our brothers and sisters around the world. But Jesus is saying, ask. There's the problem. Ask for more workers. And the thing with this is, I think in Kerrang, we feel this a little more acutely, don't we? We don't have a minister here at this point, regularly for that sort of work. We have so many vacancies in regional Victoria, and we need more workers. So, in a sense, pardon the pun, We're not trying to preach the converted. We're just being reminded, what do we fill our prayers with? What do we pray for? What do we ask God for? What great work would we like God to see do in our time? Would we like to see more workers in this harvest, in this field? And if that's our prayer, if that's what we're praying for, I wonder... As we pray this prayer, maybe, maybe, this prayer is answered as we look around. When I was 13, I knew I wanted to be a farmer. When I was 18, I wanted to be a farmer. When I was 21, I wanted to be a farmer. 22, 23. And then someone said, you know, you can kind of talk the leg off a chook. Perhaps you could give a go at preaching, you know, a bit raw, you know, we need some work on it. Perhaps you could speak, perhaps you could lead a Bible study. I'm a young man in a tiny, tiny church, probably half the size of this. I'm like, are you serious? I'm a fifth generation in my family. God wants me to be a farmer, it's evident. But Jesus tells me, he tells us, he tells you, pray Ask for more workers for the harvest. They may even come from Kerrang. How about that? We don't know if the young children here 
may one day be the preachers of their generation. We don't know if it's you, we don't know if it's the old people here, the ones who think, I'm too old for this, never too old for this. Nursing homes, places where there are many lost. There's a a famous event, well he's not so famous, he's just an evangelist, but I know him. His name's John Chapman. He's in Sydney, he's elderly now, he's probably in his mid-80s. He's been an evangelist all his life, he's now in a nursing home, and he's trying to be a worker for the harvest, even in the nursing home. He says he goes to funerals about three times a week. And he, he, he went to a funeral recently, he was saying, he's sitting there and there's one of their friends has died, and he turns to his friend beside him with a gospel mindset, and he says to his friend, same age as him, makes you think, doesn't it? And his friend said, about what? There are so many lost sheep, from nursing homes to schools to workplaces to our own families. We need more workers. They might be paid, they might not be paid, but we need more workers for this harvest, for it's ready. So are we? I want to finish with asking that question, are we? Are we ready? Does this this, this fill our prayers? I think this is a rare prayer today. We're we're trying to pray this more in our own church because we haven't been praying it much lately. Today, I think, I'm not sure if it's PCV-wide, but today's Metro MTS Sunday. It's just thinking about ministry apprenticeships for some people. And seriously, we pray in Bendigo that we would see students raised up, trained, go to college, down at PTC, go to college, and come out to be workers for the harvest. That's a long-term project, isn't it? We've got a little batch of about eight we took to a conference yesterday. If, if, if four of those went, that would be about maybe six to ten years' time. It takes time, but we need more workers. I think for us this morning, the question is, not so much the time issue, it's that's not the problem. I think it's a, it's a heart problem for you and I. It can easily be a heart problem. It's a rare prayer because our hearts are often in other places. The question is, do we have Jesus' heart? Or do we lack it? Do we look at the people and just kind of a bit of disdain, a bit of annoyance? They're there, they exist in my street, in my neighbourhood, on my road right now in front of me. Do we look at them or do we think about them with compassion? I think it's often a heart problem that leads to a perception problem that leads to a prayer problem. We need to pray for people. Statistically, biblically, even, there are simply not enough workers. Are you one of them? Are you one of them now? Will you become one of them? Will you pray for them? For Jesus had compassion... He had compassion that led to his passion on the cross. He had a compassion for people that led to him being passionate for them, for more workers for them, to pray for more workers for the harvest. So will we pray? Will we pray? Let's start now. Our Father in heaven, Lord, Lord of the harvest, we recognise the needs in our own community. We recognise the needs in our church and our churches. There are just not enough workers. And the harvest is huge. Father, we pray that you would give us the opportunity to make many contacts in our community, to expand our friendship circles, to 
enable us to speak the gospel in those circles. And we pray that you would encourage us in this because it can be so discouraging. We remember the grace of the gospel for ourselves, but we we feel discouraged because we feel like people don't want to hear grace. They don't want to hear good news gospel, but we know that there are many out there that are yours. still your harvest, and that gives us confidence. And so we pray, Father, that you would use us in this short life, life that is but a vapour, that you would use us to pray and proclaim to people the good news of Jesus. And we pray for more workers, particularly for more workers here in Kerrang, and we pray that we would remember these things in our prayers, that would fill our prayers, asking you, knowing you provide. We pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.